Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Nauseam listeners to episode 48 of the podcast. As always, my name is Dr. David Noe. I'm here in the vomitorium with my good friend, recently convalescing Dr. Jeff Winkle. Yes. How are you, Jeff? I, I'm doing okay. Yeah, yes. I'm struggling, fighting a, fighting a cold. The listener can probably tell. I've... Another summer cold? Another summer cold. Yeah, this, ah. this is yeah, this is maybe my third one. Wow, that's terrible. Yeah, yeah. So I got a bit of the frog um, in the throat, but okay. uh, well, we're, we're going to make it. What we're have you been up to recently? Uh, I went to, I spent a weekend in uh, the lovely city of Detroit, oh, Michigan. Motown. Motown. Was it like a family vacation, I understand? It was my, my wife and I got a uh, getaway. You know, we're, we're all couples like to get away, Detroit. Right. Right. What kinds of things did you see there? Well, I went to a baseball game, saw the Detroit Tigers lose to the Orioles. All right. We, we um, went to um, what's called this Van Gogh immersive experience. Really? Which was amazing. It plunge you underwater? They, they take like a, like a, a head in a toilet bowl. Okay. <laughs> They shove you in there and the Van Gogh. What do they call that? What are they looking for? It's the Van Gogh swirly. <laughs> oh, it brings me back to junior high, man. But no, it was this really cool. This really cool um, room where they project Van Gogh's paintings on the floor and on huh. the walls, and they animate them. It was really, it was a really brilliant uh, mix of kind of old school humanities and uh, cutting edge. Uh, digital technology. Fascinating. Yeah. And speaking of cutting edge, to yeah. make it truly immersive, do they remove your ears at the end? They do. I mean, okay. they, they didn't mention that uh, in the brochure. <laughs> it wasn't in the fine right, print. Exactly. But there's a guy waiting with a with, a, with a, a scimitar yeah. at, at the exit. Right. So A Procrustean finale. Exactly right. So okay. I'm, I'm regretting that I, I upped for the VIP package. Wow. Right. Wow. <laughs> so uh, before we get to the main event today, yeah. which is our conversation with Dr. Patrick Owens, mm-hmm. we have a shout out, don't we? We do. And this goes to... Uh, uh, Katie Donnelly. Oh, I remember Katie. Yeah, I have a, a dim memory of Katie because I only started at Calvin, a former institution, 2007. She left in 2009, but you interacted with her quite a bit. Oh, yeah. I had Katie in lots of classes. Mm-hmm. She was uh, um, a, um, a fireball. Right. Spunky. Okay. Right. Um, never, so, never, never shy to offer an opinion. I loved having her in class. She yeah. Played. Yep. So she writes, um, I graduated 2009 from Calvin University, nay college, with a double major in classics and ancient Greek. I managed to sneak in some Latin as well. Good job, Katie. And that led me to a master's in anthropology and museum studies. And get this, Jeff. Yeah. She currently works at a history museum in Metro Detroit. Oh my, my gosh. I did yeah. no idea. I would have swung by. Yep. She says, I love listening to the podcast while doing projects on my old house. Dr. Winkle was my advisor. Yep. Good, good job, Jeff. Way, I remember that very, very advise. well. Yeah. And she was on the equestrian team, and you, Jeff, were the faculty liaison <laughs> trying to stir up some trouble. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Not my finest, proudest moment. Is I, I, was, a, I was a terrible advisor to the equestrian. Really? Never, never ridden a horse in my life. <laughs> Right, but what's, uh, what's involved in faculty liaising the equestrian club? Um, they, I think they needed clearance to get pizza for a get together or something like that, or mm-hmm. uh, handling handling the budget for soda pop. Right, I was all over that mucking the stables. But, no? <laughs> there was no mucking. Huh. There was no there was no mucking. There was no interact. There was no equine interaction. Right, at all. right. Yeah, every, every club needs a faculty liaison, though. They do. Yeah, I did some faculty liaising. You, I think you were the liaison for the rugby team. The rugby team and the chess club. And the chess club. Right. Right. And you uh, uh, comported yourself very well. As I, I did what I could. Yeah. yeah, I love chess. So, 
Well, let's get right to it. All right, Jeff. So our opening quote this week yes. is from Basil Leno Gildersleeve, Limits of Culture from Essays and Studies, 1890. Is that right? 1890. 1890. Okay. Long time ago. So you want to read that for us? Sure. Mr. Gildersleeve writes, what we want is not less Latin and Greek, but less waste of time in learning or pretending to learn Latin and Greek. That's interesting. So he doesn't even want to waste time when he's pretending to learn Latin and Greek. No, 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 no. It's has efficiency all the time. Absolutely. Right. And uh, so we're very happy to welcome into the studio today, into the Vomitorium. This is Vomitorium West now, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Are we ever going to go back to the old one? I don't think so. No. This is the the location. Right. Dr. Patrick Maloney Owens. Yes. Is it Maloney? It's Maloney. Yes. Yeah, Welcome, Patrick, astonished. to the show. I'm, I am delighted to be here. The vomitorium is a beautiful place. I had expected people vomiting or uh-huh. drinking to excess or eating to excess. No, that's rather, been outlawed. We had, we had that early on, but it, 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 it wasn't working. You've moved beyond that. We've moved well past that, yes. Right. Yeah. As I said, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I am an avid listener and even recommend your, your podcast to students. Oh, excellent. Well, we, wow. re- we appreciate that. Yeah. So you're an avid listener and you recommend the podcast to others. That's great. So Thank the, you so much. The perfect, the perfect My pleasure. Yes. If we could be self-indulgent <laughs> for just a couple minutes, what do you like most about the podcast? <laughs> he wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> well, I, as a classical gourmand myself, appreciate the levity that you bring to the podcast because I tune into a number of other podcasts and there's a certain stiffness, a certain erudition that doesn't keep me interested. Hmm. I think that's one of the things we saw as an issue out there that we're trying to address. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's dressed. It's, it's dressed. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Patrick, um, uh, now that you're here, we have you trapped inside the vomitorium. Um, I'm wondering if you could, you, we could start just by having you talk a little bit about your background and kind of addressing this question of, uh, we're talking about Latin textbooks and what makes a good textbook and why should we care what Patrick Owens thinks about uh, these kinds of things. So um, uh, could you answer that question by telling us a bit about your background and what brought you to to the Latin language and the expertise that you hold today? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for asking. Mm-hmm. I'll try to do that. Well, I grew up in New York City, and um, in the area that I grew up, there were some rough schools. So my mother determined to send me to a, a Jesuit preparatory school at which all students were required to take Latin. So um, there I was introduced to Latin. I, I won't say that I learned Latin, but um, I learned about it. And that, fa- that failing, the fact that I didn't really learn Latin in high school was a failing of my own, not, not of any teachers or textbooks. In fact, um, I was kind of a, a, a poor student in high school and I had wonderful teachers, one particularly who really turned me on to an interest in, in the classics and in Latin, but I didn't make the progress that I, sh- I should have. The interest though, carried me through. And towards the end of high school, I had made enough progress that I determined to to set about and change course and study classics more seriously. And so I, I majored in classics at Fordham University, where I was afforded the incredible experience of studying abroad in my, my junior year. And if you have any listeners, any audience members who are university students, I would just love to recommend studying abroad in their ju- junior year for students of the classics, for classical gourmands, there's no better way than than traveling. And I know that you and David have taken students abroad and, and know the value also of, of traveling. Oh, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt. It yeah. left some there in our better moments. <laughs> <laughs> Take them abroad and just don't bring them back. So no, I, I'm curious. So your, your mom pushed you, you're going to this Jesuit school. That's right. And uh, so I take it she's fully on board with her son 
steeped in Latin and stuff. But now, how about when you now say, hey, hey, mom, I'm going on to to study Latin in, in university. I want to make this career. Did, did she have a did she have a moment like I imagine many parents would have today if, the, if their child was I'm going to study classics like, oh, what are you going to do with that? Sure. Right. I think she thought by sending me to a posh preparatory school that I was going to be able to afford to fund her retirement or maybe take <laughs> care of her in her old age. Yeah. Uh, and when I determined to study classics for the rest of my life, I, I'm sure that there was a, a, a panic um, that I would be unemployed. I don't know that we've ever talked about really? how she felt about it at the start. Now she's but she very never supportive. said to you, said, you're crazy. She never she never said, what, what are you doing? She, you know, she was supportive. She yeah, really the, was. Uh, good, good, she good. wanted me to, to follow my interests. And yeah. I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So you went abroad to Italy and you at some point met the, the incredible scholar, uh, Luigi Miralia, right? Aloysius? That's right. That's right. Uh, I had studied at the Intercollegiate Center for Classical Studies, also known as the Centro, which is oh, right. an, yeah. a study abroad center in Monteverde Vecchio in Rome, where the late Reginald Foster resided, that is in that same neighborhood, Monteverde Vecchio. So I had the opportunity to meet and then study with Reginald Foster for, for many years. Was he involved in the Centro or did you, did you pursue that independently? You know, he was not. He just happened to live literally down the block or rather more precisely up the block from yeah. the Centro. That's crazy. And it was crazy. Yeah. And so I studied, as I said, at the Centro and then study what was college year in Athens. And after those two experiences, I came came back to Italy again to study with Luigi Miralia, who is the founder and president of Academia Vivarium Novum, which is an institution in which uh, all students, all members of the faculty only speak Latin or on occasion ancient Greek. All lectures are provided in, in Latin. The time that I joined Vivarium Novum though, it was not in Rome where it is today. It was really more like a, a motley crew of, of scholars. We were six or seven in number at the time in, in a, a country villa about two hours east of Naples. And we decided that we would live in common and hold everything more or less in common, take meals in common. We wouldn't date. We wouldn't go out except in pairs of, of two. And we would study classical literature. Wow. Wow. How did you how did you stumble upon this group? You um, know, it was quite you, fortuitous. You're not, you're not doing this for college credit, I imagine. No, there's no credit. There's no credit. This is just, this is... This is just an independent, well, not independent, but a, a group experience. It's, it, it's, it's the greatest kind of leisure. Yeah. And it was. It was really a, a lesson in, in what erudite leisure should be. I learned about it from a great article in New Yorker magazine. Maybe you've read this article, I don't know, about Luigi Moralia. It was published in the early noughts, I guess. And it's a character sketch of, of Luigi and his eccentricities, I guess, his interests, his desire to found a, a school of the, of the sort that he ultimately did. And I was, I was drawn to it. His description of humanities and the, the, the great Renaissance humanitas drew me in. And having already had the experience with Reginald Foster, in which I, I, I recognized that the, the one way for me to really master Latin would be to speak it regularly, build relationships in it, and, and learn to think in it, to live in Latin. And that is what my experience with Luigi Moralia at the Academia Vivarium Novum afforded me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was there a moment, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by 
by people who are adept with languages and, and multiple languages. Was there a moment where you, you found like it clicked? Like I said, now, no, I've heard some people say like if you find yourself dreaming in a language, that's a sign that you've acquired it, uh, you know, more than skin deep. I'm just wondering, was there a, a moment or was it just more just kind of a, a slow absorption of all of this stuff? But. You know, Jeff, you, you said it. Um, it was sort of like having a dream, the experience in which I, I one day woke up and recognized, wow, I'm, I'm really doing this. I'm really speaking Latin inside. Uh, a friend of mine from the States came to visit me in Italy, and I took him sightseeing, and we stayed over in a hotel. In the morning, he got up, and I got up, and um, I started speaking to him on the side of my bed to someone who has no classical background. He's a geologist. And he said, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't speak Latin. And I said, oh gosh, I'm sorry. Was I speaking Latin again? So it was, it was that automatic. It was that automatic. Wow. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. And you know, it's sua sponte. Mm. It was, it was, it, it's kind of ironic. There's this book, maybe you've heard of it. Gosh, what, what's it? Sounds familiar. Um, it's, it's how to cuss in Latin or obscenities in yeah, Latin. It's uh, how to insinuate, abuse, and revile. How to insinuate, abuse, and revile in Latin. Oh. <laughs> and it's a terrible book. I mean, it has... <laughs> not what I thought. Okay, it's, it's, it's a funny book. Frutex. Um, <laughs> some of the, la- Frutex some of the Latinity is pretty questionable. Okay, okay. And some of the language is vulgar. Mm. Um, but there's a, a line in there that says, um, sorry, was I speaking Latin again? And sort of as a joke, like, how could that ever happen, right? right. And that's literally what, what I said. Yeah. That's wild. <laughs> that is so great. Yeah. I'm trying to keep the kind of the timeline straight. So you, you uh, at the Centro, you studied with Foster. And then at the Luigi School, was that the kind of the third is it so there's a, the there's a, a piece in between, which okay. is I went to the Conventiculum Lexingtoniense, which is a conference in Lexington, Kentucky, where scholars, aficionados, Latin lovers from around the world come. Klingon speakers, don't forget. That's true. Uh, is, that, is that true? It is really? true. Well, That's why I said it, Winkle. But, but, yeah, the Latin, the Latin uh, They're speaking Klingon. <laughs> All right. Please go on, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> well... About 100 people used to get together, and, and I should say about 100 people get together annually there. COVID has created a, perhaps a pause in that temporarily to speak Latin and to grow in their ability to, to converse and read Latin fluently. So I, I, I went there that summer, and lo and behold, Luigi Moralia was there, and I had read this, this description of of his character and his desire to start a school. And he invited me to come back to Italy and to participate in this experiment. Okay, okay. And so that was the, th- that was the third piece then. Okay, and then so from there, then you went to, you went to the, to the school. That's right, wow. that's did, right. Did you ever study with Chef Boyardee somewhere in there? <laughs> I didn't, he and I were like ships passing in the night. Ah. <laughs> Just missed him. Well, that's too bad. So then, Patrick, after you finished studying with Aloysius, you went back up to Rome and uh, took a PhD at the Salesian Institute. Is that right? That's right. So Aloysius is Luigi Moralia's Latin name. I should add that for your your listeners. Um, after studying with Aloysius at the Academia Vivarium Novum, I studied then at the Institutum Altioris Latinitatis, or the Institute of Higher Latin Learning, which is a pontifical institute. Ooh. <laughs> no, nothing special <laughs> other than the name. A pontifical institute located at the Salesianum, also in Rome. 
And you got a, a pompadour. Uh, right after after defending my my dissertation, which I was able to write in Latin, which was why I, 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 oh, wow, I stayed yeah. there. Because as far as I, I knew then, there wasn't anywhere else in the world where I could write my, my dissertation in Latin. Mm-hmm. I was given a, a pontifical looking hat. And I believe that I retrieved it when Jeff and I were in Italy. Oh my goodness, that's right. In 2016. With the hat? Yes. Wait, why don't you you have your own hat? Well, I had ordered it, and of course it's made to fit your head. It's a PhD Tam kind of thing. I must have an irregular head. They didn't have my pompadour or my beretta. In like stock. In stock, okay. So they had to make it for me. You had a custom. And you, you picked it up for me. Okay, I completely Thank you. forgot about you. Dropped that. it off at the uh, the hotel, was it Gilberti? Gilberti. Right by the that, Termini? Oh, that, this is coming back to me now, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I owe you a debt of gratitude. <laughs> do, you teach it, do you teach in it? Do you, you of, ever? Co- of course, I, I wear it in the shower. <laughs> no, I, I have to, I, I, I wear it only when we, we uh, would otherwise wear academic garb. Gotcha, mm. gotcha. Yeah. Or when you're cool. pontificating, right? When I'm pontificating. Which is often. <laughs> so should we get right into it then Let's and it. Uh, start taking a look at some of these curricula and maybe frame the conversation a little bit? I think the first question we'd want to ask, um, especially in light of the fact that a lot of our listeners are either Latin teachers themselves, mm-hmm. uh, many of them are Latin students. They're going to be going back to school pretty soon here if this episode drops when we intend it to. And they're going to face some curricular choices. How do we get some Latin into these young minds? So maybe this episode and the next one can be especially useful as people consider how they're going to go about teaching Latin. So the first question I think we can just throw around a little bit is, what makes a good Latin textbook, right? What makes a good Latin textbook? Patrick, do you have any thoughts on that, just in general terms, before we get down to the specifics of the, the different exemplar we're going to examine? Sure. I think that's a great question. It's a good place to start, too. Perhaps even before that, though, we might consider what is a textbook, because many instructors assume that the textbook is the curriculum, that mm. the, the, the textbook is not just the curriculum, but that is also sort of a an adjunct professor or an adjunct instructor, mm-hmm. that the, the textbook is supposed to teach the students. I see. It's so kind of strange because instructors draw a salary. Right. And textbooks rarely draw a, a salary, That's in true. my experience. So you weren't going to say before we consider what a textbook is, we should consider what a book is? <laughs> We're not going to go that far. <laughs> okay. So if I understand your point, Jeff, help me out here. Yeah. Um, it's really not the textbook that's teaching the student. Is that partly your point? Crazy the, idea, right? Yeah, the textbook is to be a, um, a facilitator of the skill set you're trying to get the student to appropriate. I, I like the Latinate vocabulary of facilitate, mm-hmm. but I, I would describe the textbook simply in a good old Anglo-Saxon tool. It is okay. a tool for the, right. for the instructor. And mm-hmm. if the instructor treats the textbook as the instructor, the instructor becomes the tool. Yes. And we've all known instructors who are tools. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so don't take that textbook. <laughs> yeah, I saw that coming a long way away. And I thought, he's going to go for that. Uh, he's going to go for that equivocation on the word tool. So yeah. just let him go. And you deserved it. Yeah. <clears throat> so what you're saying is, it's to facilitate. It's to be a tool for the learning of the student. And you're kind of insinuating that maybe some Latin instructors become too reliant upon the text. They want the text to do the work for them. Is that fair to say? I think that's the case. So you're saying, first of all, a textbook is a tool to facilitate the study. So once we have that down, then what should we look for in that kind of tool? A textbook needs, of course, to present accurate information. So if you have a textbook that has serious mistakes, that Mm -hmm. presents material that is either not true, not accurate, or 
anything along those lines, that's, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. In most fields of study, you can ex expect, you can have as a starting assumption that anything contained in the textbook will be either true or very close to true. Right. It's unfortunate that in some number of Latin textbooks, there are egregious enough errors to perhaps disqualify them from the classroom. Mm. We won't be talking okay. uh, about textbooks that are of that utterly disqualified yes. because um, we're, we're nice people. We want to be charitable. I'd like to talk about maybe one of them. Okay, <laughs> well, maybe we can do that. Yeah. Then. Maybe not by name, but right. um, I get this question a lot as well, as I'm sure you do as a Latin teacher. What's the best textbook? Which one do you recommend? And uh, of course, I step back from that question at first and say, there is no silver bullet, mm -hmm. right? The mm -hmm. textbook is not going to give you a knowledge of Latin. You have to do the work. So that's in line with um, the sense of a good tool. But the second thing I typically say is, as long as the material in it is accurate, it's been vetted by people who know the language, you can't really go wrong. You, you might not have as much fun or your progress might be impeded or slowed down but it's not going to be wrong. That's right. So that, that appears to me to be the, the lowest bar, right. that a textbook contains accurate information. But if that were the only criterion, we would simply hand our students a, a grammar book that is a, a list of yes. um, forms and constructions. And that doesn't quite work because, as you insinuated, a textbook ought to also excite the learner, mm -hmm. ought to at least present the material in a way that is learnable, mm -hmm. that is recognizably pedagogical. Mm -hmm. So to that question, and like you said, I get that question, not never, um, what is the best Latin textbook? My answer usually is the textbook that works, works better for you and for your students. There is no silver bullet. And a situation that I'm in currently at a university is certainly different from the situation in which a teacher is instructing students in primary school or middle school or high school. And even one university classroom can be quite different from another university classroom. Sure. The preferences of the instructor, the needs of the instructor, the level of comfort on the part of the students, all these things need to be taken into account when choosing or employing a textbook. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, how much, do we, when you look at a Latin textbook, um, are you looking for uh, you know, some culture in there as well? You know, when I taught Latin, it was, it was you know, it's primarily I want them to learn the language, but I also want this to be a, um, a platform for them to understand a bit about Roman culture too. And so you, are you looking for kind of a balance there? Or kind of a, a, it's nice if it's there, you know, or I can bring that in myself? Um, sure, I would, I would agree with you. I appreciate when ancient culture, particularly Roman culture, is included in a Latin textbook because it's very difficult, if not impossible, to really learn a language without a connection to the culture in which it grew up or sure. in which it, it is employed. It's certainly difficult, if not impossible, to, to understand Roman literature bereft of the requisite knowledge about Roman culture. Of course. So let's get an example to make it easier for our listeners to understand what we're saying. What would be an example of something that the student can't come to understand well, some, some philological, lexical item, without having background in culture? Great question. Well, how about the cursus honorum? Okay. The cursus honorum, of course, is the, the ladder, so to speak, that a Roman citizen, a Roman politician specifically, 
would ascend, mm-hmm. culminating with the consulate, the the office of consul. If if a reader doesn't appreciate what those steps are or the importance of the general outline of the cursus honorum, it would be very difficult to understand the references in either a political speech or a historian to an ideal, a, mm-hmm. a tribune, right. a consul, so on and so forth. So if Cicero says you're just a lousy tribune, right, <laughs> and you don't know, well, That's is, right. is, the, is the tribune above the edile or is he below? The insult doesn't have much salience. Sure, exactly. And if, you, if one doesn't know the responsibilities of the aedile or the tribune, mm-hmm. that would complicate such references as well. Mm-hmm. So like, ideally for someone starting Latin, it would be great for them to come in having had a, a course in Roman history, you know, have a lot of the stuff kind of under their belt, rather than the language course having to double as a history culture course. At, at That's the right. Time, right. That's but, right. That certainly would speed up the language learning process. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, in right. most environments, we have to assume that our students have little or no right. knowledge of, of Roman culture. Another example, David, might be that of the pater familias, mm-hmm. the role of the father of the household, the man of the house. There really is no analog to that in, in our culture. We, we say father of the house or man of the household, but it's important to remember that in ancient Rome, the pater familias had the right to sentenced to death mm-hmm. and and to execute that sentence of a member of his own household. And so the the reverence owed in the culture and the the prudence of reverence exercised towards the pater familias can only be understood within that context. Sure. So when you say the prudence of reverence, you mean everyone's got to respect the pater familias because he has the right to take your life. At the least in theory. Go- the law is going to protect him right. against any kind of prosecution. So long as the social pressure doesn't uh, tip in the other direction. I'm not sure that we have a great number of examples of patres familias taking the life mm-hmm. of a of a son or of a member of his household, but at least that is the idea, and therefore there is a certain debt owed. Yeah. It, okay. It, whether you know the power was used or not, it goes way beyond. Um, you know, when we use the phrase "man of the house," right? Mm-hmm. It's it, it's 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 a complete. It's a it's a thing that's completely other. When I yeah. imagine a man of the house, I imagine a, a man wearing a wife beater, um, <laughs> with that, a of beer belly. Is, is a certain kind of T-shirt that's mm-hmm. a tank top. Yes. You don't think that your audience members know what? I it, don't know. Okay. Um, <laughs> and they're. He, he's got a beer in his hand. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's an alcoholic beverage. Right. Um, and he's sitting on a couch. Yeah. That's not a pater familia. No. no, no so no, those no. two terms are really Yeah, light years apart. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. So we've talked then about what is a textbook? What's the role of a textbook? We've talked a little bit about um, some cultural elements. What do you think is a good way for a textbook to organize material? Because one of the things I noticed when I began doing some of the homework for this episode, refreshing my knowledge of some of the different kinds of uh, textbooks, is the presentation is always quite different. Uh, most textbooks in Latin, they're going to begin with the first person singular and maybe the first declension in the first chapter. But where are you going to put some of the other things? There's quite a lot of variety. Does the gerund and the gerundive, do they go in the same chapter, chapter 28, and dative with special verbs? Where are we going to you know, stick that? So. <laughs> What do you right. think about presentation as an, an important element of textbook composition? That's hugely important. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's right. Um, to Jeff's point, 
the organization of culture and grammar and examples of, of literature or readings can make or break the presentation of a of a of a textbook. It can can make it really usable and user friendly, or it can make it difficult to to employ in a classroom. As an instructor, I prefer a, a Latin textbook to be Latin heavy, and that's because. But what what I mean by Latin heavy is that it contains a lot of Latin, mm-hmm. and it contains a lot of a, a great number of readings and plenty of examples of Latin. There, there's a tendency in certain Latin textbooks to provide sentences out of context or to, to pro- provide in each and every chapter only a few lines of Latin and many paragraphs about Roman culture. And that Roman culture is all, always in English mm-hmm. uh, or almost always in English. And that doesn't aid in the acquisition of a language, right? Mm-hmm. A- in order to acquire any language, one needs to to be exposed to it. You, you, no one learns a language by simply looking at grammatical charts or reading about a language. And so that's really the difference, perhaps, between learning a language, as it's commonly put, which is really learning about a language, okay. mm-hmm. and acquiring a language. Mm-hmm. And in a textbook, that comes down to the presentation of material. If the language isn't presented in a way that is accessible, the, the learner, the user, can't acquire the language from the page because there's just not enough provided to the, to the learner. Mm-hmm. And we see that problem in many, many introductory textbooks, especially those that are developed for secondary school. Right. This is what Stephen Krashen would call comprehensible input. That's right. There has to be Very enough good. comprehensible input, CI. Yes, excellent. Right. To, to the point of organization of when certain grammatical concepts mm-hmm. come up, Anne Mahoney, who is a professor at Tufts, right. has an excellent article, which I, I recommend to your listeners. Um, I believe the title is The Forms You Really Need to Know, yes. in which she runs the statistics of the the appearances of certain forms. Say, how frequently does the first person singular present indicative appear compared to the third person plural of the future perfect passive hmm. indicative. So if, if I could just sure. break in here, um, I've seen that article, you know, we talked about it, you recommended it to me, I share it with everyone who would like to read it. I hand it out on the street, hey, you wanna see this? This is really fascinating. I've seen you, it's really awkward. We're proselytizing we for Ann Mahoney. <laughs> and so forth. And uh, I believe almost 75%, it's something like 748 of all verb tenses in Latin are either the present or the perfect. That's oh, wow. right. So if you know the present and the perfect, you can uh, skate your way, fudge your way through the additional tenses. I mean, you don't want to do that, but where should you place the bulk of your study? It should be on those tenses, just in terms of practicality. Well, let me ask um, Patrick, but also you, David. Have you ever um, chosen a textbook and, and with some of these ideas in mind, saying, you know, we're going to start with chapter four, because mm. I think this is, we, we need to front load the, uh, the student study with it because of these things, or, or not. I'm just, I'm curious if you've ever just That's a great of, question. I haven't. Mm-hmm. Have you, have you? No, I, I haven't. Okay. I, I, I'm, it, just, it just popped into my head of, of you know, what's it Yeah, just to go three for three, I haven't either. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I have had uh, severe criticisms of textbooks based on that fact. Why is the subjunctive so late in so many textbooks when, in fact, it's a really common form? Hmm. It occurs quite often, specifically the independent subjunctive. 
the subjunctive is used independently, right? Not subordinated to another verb. That's right. Quite yeah. often. So why delay something that students are really going to need? It's like, uh, you know, I mean, t- teach you how to play basketball, and we'll spend all the time dribbling and shooting, but not not passing. Yeah. Right? We can we can learn that later. Right. 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 Maybe that explains the NBA today. <laughs> That stands for National Basketball Association, Patrick. <laughs> Thank you. And the reference is a lot of the players will shoot and dribble, but they don't pass because it's no no longer a team sport. Oh, well, thank you. I, I appreciate you helping me through that reference. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> you won't be surprised mm-hmm. that from Anne Mahoney's research, we can tell that the first person singular form of, of verbs is much less common than the third person plural, mm-hmm. or the third person singular. And that is perhaps a function more of the corpus that, that we have than of uh, a representation of actual Roman speech or right. use of Latin. So it, we're not trying to say something necessarily about the, the language itself, but at least the literature that students are likely to encounter mm-hmm. after studying Latin w- will include a greater number of third-person right. verbs than first-person verbs. And for that reason, some textbooks, many textbooks perhaps, teach the third person mm-hmm. either at the same time as the first person or they they front-load it. That is, right. in the early chapters, they, they'll teach the, the third person. And, you know, I'm, I'm just using this as one example mm-hmm. of the way that choosing the layout of what gr- grammar to present at what period can be informed by good research. Right. Right. So although you're speaking English, let me translate a little bit for okay. uh, <laughs> listeners. What you're saying is the selection of literature in terms of which person and number of verb is presented might be a little bit artificial. So it's not as though, you know, Quintus on the street is saying to Gaius, uh, you know, I really can't use the first person singular. You know, I'm going to use the third singular and the third plural because that dominates Latin. So they may have been using all the persons and numbers just as much as we do in a very natural fashion. But the literary record elevates the, the uh, I don't know, the prevalence of third singular and third plural. Is that right? That's right. And a, a great example of this, a great concrete example, is Caesar's commentaries. Mm-hmm. In Caesar's commentaries, Caesar has the tendency of saying, Caesar sends three legates, right. um, Caesar set up camp, so on right. and so forth, instead of saying, we or I. And that's just a great example of why in the corpus, especially the corpus that is the canon, that is the the body of literature that's most frequently read Mm -hmm. from ancient Latin literature, shows a propensity towards the third person rather than the first or second person. Mm -hmm. So that's not just Caesar... Kind of going all celebrity on us, like you know Shaquille O'Neal used to talk about. You know, Shaq doesn't like to do this. So it's, he's not just he's not just uh, doing that kind of thing. It's he, interesting he's that you big timing us. You use Shaq there. Um, contrary to what David will think, I know who Sha- Shaq Shaqu- is. Shaquille O'Neal. Yes. Um, and I basketball player, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. He, <laughs> I use for that example Bo. Remember Bo knows. Oh, Bo knows. Right. Bo knows. Uh, Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and Bo in those commercials or in those ads didn't say I knows. Right. He said Bo knows in the third mm-hmm. person, even though it was Bo. Right. 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 Yeah. So yeah, sort of like Caesar knows. Okay, Caesar knows. Right. Yeah. Mm. But you're saying that that's kind of more of a... She's our shit. Mm-hmm. Kaiser Skeet. You, oh. <laughs> so, Actually, but skits. you're saying that that's, right. that was more kind of a, it, um, kind of a function idiom of, of the language. It's not Caesar being like Bo Jackson or, or Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, you're saying that the, the third person used in that way is a, is a more 
common kind of thing, or kind of expected kind of thing. Or, or no. Well, actually, actually, I intend to say the opposite. That oh, really? It, it, it's not representative necessarily of anything peculiar about the language. It's representative, rather, of the corpus. Okay. And so okay. the corpus that is extant of, of literary Latin misrepresents or, or shows us a cross-section of usage that isn't perhaps representative of the whole, gotcha. but it is representative of itself. Gotcha. So there seems to be, a, a, um, with a lot of Latin textbooks, a, a disconnect between how the language is presented and how it actually reflects what we find in the literature. In many ways. In many ways. Yes, okay. that's right. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Any other uh, points that you'd like to mention as we think about what constitutes a good textbook before we start discussing some particular examples? Well, sure. As we said earlier, textbooks need to be particular to the circumstance in right. which the learner or the instructor finds oneself. And so for younger learners, that means that it has to have some sort of graphic or colors, th things that will attract pictures. The, the pictures. Right. Yeah. Scratch and sniff Latin. That, right. I think you're this onto what, something. This is what the, the Gallic forest smelled like after the... Or oxes or and horses. Garum. Went garum. I was just going to think garum. Yeah. It, that was, I wonder what that smells scratches like. Scratches of garum. Right. Well, and garum, of Rotten course, fish. is this fish sauce that the Romans were fond of. <laughs> right, right? right, right. Right. Fermented. Yes. Several yeah. days old. Right. So it's yeah. got to have pictures, colored pictures. Mm -hmm. It's got to have something like that. Something like that for the for the younger students. And then there needs to be a balance between the forest and the trees. Mm -hmm. So by that I mean some textbooks have a tendency of early on explaining all the exceptions. I recently used a textbook in which the first chapter presented the first declension and then all the exceptions to the first, first declension. In right. Like filiabus. Filiabus <laughs> or uh, the genitive singular in as. Yes. So filias, familias rather right. than familiae. And a, a, an early learner doesn't need to know exceptions. The right. early learner needs to know what is typical, what is prototypical. Yes. Perhaps even... Artificial? Perhaps even artificial, mm -hmm. at least at the beginning, so that the student can comprehend the layout of, of the land. Mm -hmm. Now, because Dr. Owens is charitable, he's not mentioning the name of that textbook, but the astute listener can go find it, <laughs> and if you identify it and send it to us, you get the next episode free, right? That, that's the prize. No cost. You no can cost. listen to the next wow. one. Wow. That, that's what a deal. I can, hear deal. The, I can hear them scurrying already. <laughs> <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Hackett Publishing, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and right here in the heartland, Indianapolis, Indiana. Hackett has been bringing high-quality translations and primary texts and editions to readers and students for how long, Jeff? Oh, at least 40 years. A so very long time. I want to say more than 40 years, yeah. yeah. What kinds of things do you like about Hackett's offerings? I love their um, the readability of their translations. I love their the way they um, are close to the original uh, languages but are yet um, um, accessible to the to the average lay reader, and they please kind of your, your newbie student all the way up to your experienced faculty. Right, and I understand you love the covers, too. Oh, the covers are great. You the, always talk about the covers. They're so clever. Like you just stepped out of a Van Gogh immersion event or something. <laughs> exactly right. My favorite is on the cover of their translation of the Bacchae. Yes. They've got uh, Elvis Presley uh -huh. at his military uh, induction. But yes. it, it looks like he's been arrested. Okay. Um, and that's perfect. You know, the... the so um, in the Bacchae, right, there's the character of uh, Pentheus? Yes. Okay. And, and then Dionysus, this wild, attractive god, comes to town and drives all the women crazy. Right. And the, the townspeople don't know what to do with it. Right. Right. So, and Pentheus ends up in jail. Yes. 
Or, or is it Bach? No, he, no Pentheus, tr- Pentheus tries to imprison yes, Dionysus. And he yeah. breaks free and wreaks havoc. Right. So there's the connection to Elvis. Exactly. Right? And when Elvis comes to town, all the Clever. teenage girls go crazy. It's, it's yeah. perfect. It's brilliant. Yep. Yeah, they also offer a lot of their texts online through something called Red Shelf. Yes. You can get um, online versions, you know, like a, like a Kindle download, but more sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. So if our listeners want to score some of this great material from our generous sponsor, Mm -hmm. Hackett has been with us from the beginning. Yeah. What should they do? Well, uh, they should go to hackettpublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T. I was just going to ask you, how many T's in there? (laughs) Two T's. Okay. And uh, you find the text that you want. You enter uh, AN2021 in the coupon code box. AN2021. Right. In the coupon code box. And that will get you 20% off everything you order. Hold hold on now. I got to do this again. Yes. What's that percentage? 20%. That's incredible. It's incredible, but that's not all. Okay. Free shipping. Amazing. Amazing. Check it out. This episode of Odd Nauseam also brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Helwig and the good people at Ratio Coffee from Portland, Oregon have done it. They've solved all your brew-based problems. There's no reason to go down to the local overpriced drive through coffee store. Just get yourself one of the great machines from Ratio, the Ratio 6 or the Ratio 8, and there's no need to ever go out to one of those, those places again. Yeah, well, thanks, Jeff. I am totally in agreement with you there. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to go down to those... What did you call them? Those uh, fancy pants, um, brew barns, the brew like? barns and beaneries. Right, right you right. don't want to go there. But Jeff, what what if I want to buy one of those plasticky, cheapo appliances for twenty one bucks and make my coffee that way? No, that's even worse. How come? That's even worse because they're, they're, it's going to be you know they got the the carafe sitting there on the burner. Yes, and it's uh, it's it's making a lot of noise as the as the water comes through the the head. It's terrible. Right. It's terrible. You, you know what I don't miss? What I don't miss that smell of burnt coffee. No. I oh. haven't smelled burnt coffee for almost two, well, more than two years now since I got the Ratio 8. The Ratio 8. Yes. Eight. I've got the 6. And you don't have that problem either with that scorchy pad underneath. No. No. Sends brackish tang throughout your living area. No. No. And that that, um, that highly polished metal carafe. It's gorgeous. Keeps it, uh, keeps it warm. There's no need for the burner. No. It's, it's great stuff. It's got a Fibonacci head at mm-hmm. the top, right, which sends the, the water down into the cone. And I heard, I have to tell you, Jeff, I heard from one listener, they liked the uh, the bloom with the brew. <laughs> I'm glad somebody liked that. They liked that, <laughs> that, that Hitchcockian pun. Yes. Right? yes. So anyway, this the, the bloom stage, you put a little bit of very hot water down into the grounds mm-hmm. and all of the CO2 off gases, which gives it the bad taste. That And I never knew that. I didn't either. But now, uh, but now I can taste the difference. And then it goes from there into... Into well, you go into the brew stage. So bloom to brew, bloom to brew, and then ready, ready. Yeah. So if our listeners want to have this uh, incredible caffeinated experience that we've been enjoying, what should they do? Well, they should go to ratiocoffee.com, r a t i o coffee.com, and if they enter into the coupon code box, uh, the code a n c o. Uh, they will get the Ratio 6, the machine that, that I have and love, um, and they will get uh, how much off? 15%. 15% off. Yes, you won't regret it. Great stuff. If you love coffee, this is for you. Check it out. And last but certainly not least, this episode is also brought to you by Ad Astra Roasters of Hillsdale, Michigan. Patrick Whalen and his team have been roasting some delicious beans down there. They have this incredible, I can't even describe it, it's such an amazing machine, heavy sort of thing, roasts the beans uh, only if they score 80 or higher on their little coffee standardized test. Yeah, I believe it's called a bed roaster. Yes, Isn't that right? right. I believe you once even suggested that it might have be using parts from Mike Mulligan's steam shovel. That was so many episodes ago. 
<laughs> it stuck with me though, so we can't promise. Okay, that, but um, if you're playing the home game, you can mark off Mike Mulligan <laughs> and his steam shovel. That's right. Ad nauseum bingo. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And what are some of the the blends that you particularly enjoy? I've I've liked the Tenebris blend. We got to go to Tenebris. It's, it's still my favorite. Uh, if you want something lighter, you can go for the Huahua Tenengo, mm-hmm. right? Uh, good stuff for the poetry series. They come in these beautiful bags that are resealable, right. so no more folding and flapping and no, twisty tying. I hate tying. the folding and flapping. Oh, I can't stand it. Right? Yeah. The Las Lajas Micro Lot, oh, Feminino right. from Guatemala. That's the, the most recent one I've tried. Great yes. stuff. Great stuff. So uh, go to, please, Ad Astra Roasters, another Latin name. Very nice. A-D-A-S-T-R-A, to the stars, adastroroasters.com. And if you enter the coupon code A-N-A-A. Yes. Ad nauseum, A-N, ad astra, A-A. Maybe someday we'll sneak another odd in there. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you'll get 10% off any order. And they also have a wonderful subscription service each month. So check it out. Check it out. So, shall we get down to brass tacks then? Let's do it. Anything else we want to cover about what makes a good? I mean, we could talk about price maybe and the kind of a, the kind of paper it's printed on, but those those seem you know pretty uh, universal. The quality of Latin textbooks in terms of printing and such has gone up, and the price has gone down on the whole. I would say. Okay. Yeah. Well, wouldn't you? I mean, when I learned Huilac low these many years ago, uh, or Huilacs, if if one insists, it was printed on a kind of newsprint. Yeah. And um, didn't care for that too much, but they have improved the quality of the material since that time. Yeah, well, let's let's get into All it. All right. What, what are we tackling first? Yeah, so we're going to divide up the the review here into different categories of textbooks. And uh, Dr. Owens has suggested that we should go we should go like this. We should look at Huilac's Latin and group that together with a, a relatively new text. I think it's about five, maybe seven years old, perhaps even a decade by now, called uh, Learn to Read Latin by Russell and Keller. And then the third one in that series is the intensive course by Moreland and Fleischer. Is that right? That's correct. You have a unique way of pronouncing Fleischer. Each I have an incorrect way of you do. pronouncing it, yes. Like so many right. of your words. That's right. Right. That's right. So why like, group... Like uh, you pronounce Huila. <laughs> why <laughs> group these three silent. together? Yeah. Um, I you don't sound like you're from the Bronx. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I didn't. I, I, I guess that that's a compliment. I, should I, we give him a Bronx the, cheer? The, right, but I mean, you know, when a midwestern stereotype, you know, of a of a of a New Yorker. That's right. right? Um, you don't. You don't sound. You don't. Your your timbre doesn't betray your New York origin. Well, I I, I love the New York dialects. Yeah. I, I really do. Can you um, give us a sample? I, I can't. All right. I discerned early on in life that it was disadvantageous for me to sound like a New Yorker. Mm. Mm. So you've forgotten that. Ability. And I, I, from a very early age, attempted not to sound like a New Yorker. And now I, I can no so longer. So this was a deliberate thing. It was. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I'm not. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> One of my idiosyncrasies, I suppose. Yeah. So yeah. why Wheelock and uh, learn You're going to insist on that Wheelock, aren't you? Yeah, and <laughs> okay. learn to read Latin and Moreland and Fleischer. Why put those together? What's so, the organizing principle? So these three texts, learn to read Latin, uh, Wheelock mm-hmm. and Moreland and Fleischer, they are squarely within the grammar translation approach. Mm-hmm. The grammar translation approach, for your, your listeners who may not be familiar with that description of the pedagogy, is wherein... A textbook provides a grammatical structure and then short readings in which the same structure must be translated. So, for instance, often in the beginning of such a textbook, the first or second declension are provided, and the student needs then to interpret short texts 
either sentences or a very, very short story using the information of a table or, um, or a, a similar guide. These texts generally don't have a, a storyline. Um, they have often disjointed sentences that are exemplary sentences. We've dealt with the first category, which is those textbooks that are organized according to the grammar translation or deductive method. And as you were saying, Patrick, this approach is present a grammatical principle and then call out sentences from actual authors, usually, that are an opportunity to test this principle. Is that right? That's an articulation of the best of this kind. And okay. that's a really good description of what happens in Learn to Read Latin, in which the authors have taken pains to present only forms or constructions that appear in real authors. The others, the other two titles in this category, though, uh, don't perhaps meet that criterion. They, they present sentences that are taken out of context that are not necessarily from actual authors. Okay, now, some of them have been composed by the authors of the textbook. That's right. So there could, right. in the case of Wheelock, I assume it would be by Mr. Wheelock. Cor correct, of course. And then later by perhaps Wheelock's textbook. Right, Wheelock's textbook, I think it's gone through seven iterations. Yes, it's in mm. the seventh edition. So much of it has been revised mm -hmm. by subsequent authors and mm -hmm. editors. Then Moreland Fleischer has only gone through a few revisions it was composed as a boot camp for mm. students who wanted to learn all of Latin in one summer. Mm -hmm. And for that job, it is actually not a, a bad option. Mm -hmm. if, if some were- Oh, one, that's high praise. Okay, it's a, it's a good option for, for a- Actually not a bad option. <laughs> Those are how my teacher evaluations usually go from the students. Dr. Noy was- Actually not- Not a bad option. Not so bad, yeah. It is, it is pretty efficient. Yes. So if, if someone wants to teach or learn Latin efficiently, uh, especially in, say, 10 weeks, th this is perhaps the, the only option to do that. But, again, that is learning Latin rather than really acquiring it. I don't know anyone who has acquired Latin through this mode. Learning any language within 10 weeks really is more learning about it, learning the structures of it, learning the voca vocabulary of it. No one is internalizing a language in 10 weeks, mm -hmm. in right. my experience. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Yeah, that, um, I started with Huilaks in, is that how I should say it? Huilaks. You can pronounce it any way you want. <laughs> all right. In 1993, and I did the, the study it on my own all summer and went through the 40 chapters like that. But I didn't, I don't think that I really acquired any Latin until at least a decade later when I was teaching and then trying to learn some quotidian expressions. Patrick, let me ask you, do, do you, like in terms of acquisition, did you, did you feel like you didn't really begin to acquire the language until you were uh, speaking it and kind of, you know, immersing yourself in, on, on that level and say, okay, I'm, it's no longer kind of this textual thing, I'm, now I'm, I'm, I'm living it. That, in your opinion, does a spoken element have to be part of the acquisition of any language, including Latin, Greek, whatever? That's a great question. I'm not sure. I can't speak to many other languages. I can say when I was learning Latin in, in, in high school, I was learning about it, and I wasn't even doing that very well. I began to really acquire it when I was engaged in meaningful communication with other people, and that meaningful c communication carried me on over th the humps. And there are many humps, many roadblocks in learning a language. When one gets discouraged, one has difficulty learning necessary vocabulary or committing to memory constructions and recognizing those constructions 
in context. But those relationships then turn into relationships with the actual authors. All right, so Patrick, when we talk about grammar and translation method and the textbooks giving specific examples of how to test the student on the principle that was just introduced, could we look at chapter 19 of Wheelock and uh, maybe see how this works in practice? Sure. I, I'll point out to our audience members that we are just op- randomly opening up to chapter 19, so we're not choosing 19 for any particular reason. That's right. Right. And so this is a chapter that I believe deals with um, interrogative adjectives, uh, pronouns and rel- interrogative pronouns and relative pronouns, right? That's so, right. So could you read uh, sentence number one under the exercitationes? Sure. Quis libertatem eorum eo tempore de leire coipit? Yes. And to give a rough translation, that would be something like, uh, who began to destroy those person's liberty, those person's freedom at that time? So the quiz here, correct me if I'm wrong, is it's testing the student's uh, grasp of this new idea of the interrogative pronoun. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Very good. So in this sentence, not only is quiz new to students, but the vocabulary in this sentence is also new. Mm -hmm. So this sentence is requiring students to refer to the explicit grammar that has been presented in the last two pages in order to puzzle out or tease out a certain meaning for these sentences. Mm-hmm. That's a great example of the way that grammar translation method works. Works. The grammar is front-loaded. Students need to digest the grammar or study the, the grammar and then apply that knowledge to whatever exercises follow. Okay. So what do you think about the latinity of this sentence? Is this the kind of sentence, this is not one that's excerpted from a, an author in the uh, sententiae antiquae, right, ancient expressions. Those are based at least on Cicero, Caesar, Sallust, etc. Uh, these are composed by either Wheelock or, or Mr. Lafleur. But what do you think about the sentence's latinity? Is it decent? I'll be honest, I, I am nervous to say on the spot that libertatem delere strikes me as a, a little bit awkward. Yes. But other than that phrase, other than the, the joining of libertatem and delere, certainly the, the syntax and the grammar hold together. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is you're not sure maybe that libertatem, uh, freedom, liberty as an object, that that would normally be an object of a verb like delayre. That's correct. Yeah. Right. So we'd have to look at Lewis and Short or some other uh, dictionary and find out, is this how a Roman would have expressed the idea of um, you know, losing liberty, right? Now, Patrick, I'm also curious, you know, for, for someone who's spoken Latin for such a long time, does your, when you kind of cringe or mildly cringe at, at that, at the use of that word, does that come from, are you, what's going through your head? Are you thinking... That's not how a Roman would have written it, or just it just it clangs against your ear. Yeah, good, great question, Jeff. So the thing is, I work now largely in, in Neo-Latin literature, which is the literature written after Petrarch. Okay. And so there are certain idioms, certain turns of phrase that come up more and more frequently within that corpus, and because of that. I have trouble just keep keeping straight in my mind what locutions are really classical Latin and what locutions come up more frequently in, in later, specifically Neo, yes. Neo-Latin yeah. literature. So when I read this sentence, I thought to myself, hmm, immediately when, when David suggested it, I saw, 
quis libertatem tolere coipit mm-hmm. sounds a little bit more idiomatic to me. Tolere coipit, get rid of liberty, m- simply strikes my ears or my eyes as more Latin than libertatem delere. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm... I'm on the spot here because we, we've only opened up to this yeah, page a, a moment a ago. Yeah, it's a podcast, though, Patrick. It, the whole purpose is to put you on the spot. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's like a blood sport. Yes, that's right. It could also be, I'm not, maybe Deleo, that verb was introduced in this I chapter. I suspect and to, and that. Tolo, not, not yet. Or, I suspect that the case is. Or recently, yeah. Exactly that, yeah. and that they don't know the sense of tolo, tolore, as get rid of. Right, mm-hmm. right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. So okay. that a and student might then think that libertatem tolore would mean to lift up. Lift up, yes. Which is, you Liberty. can't really do that to freedom, right? You That's can, right. You can't <laughs> pick it up. But a general principle is that the more it sounds like an English expression, the less likely it is to be accurate, right? Because You're the probably right. two yeah. languages have such different idioms, right? Right. And so for the for the beginner, or the tiro, as we say in Latin, for the tiro, it's very important to learn early on and and and, and to accept that Latin is not English written in other words. Right. Right? It's not math where on one side of the equation we have libertatem delere, and on the other side of the equation we have to delete or destroy freedom. It simply doesn't work that way. Right. Languages are not a science. They're an art. Mm-hmm. Right. And but, ha- stu- but students want them to be. Oh, oh they do, don't they? <laughs> they do. Oh, my goodness. They want it to be math. Tell yes. me what this means. Tell me what this always means. Exactly. I remember you know, as a classic student in, in college and grad school, one of the questions I would get from you know, people outside the field like, is, well, hasn't everything been translated already? Oh, but, yeah. You know, why would you want to bother? You with hear that? that too. But 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 underneath that is this kind of like language is math, right? This word is that word. Yeah. Just switch it. Just they, you know. You know, we can hardly blame them today, though, in the age of of Google Translate. Of course, of course. Because in Google Translate, you can take a Spanish text of of moderate length and get very nearly a perfect translation. And that's just not where Google Translate is for Latin today. Mm. Yeah. If any of you <laughs> listeners want to punch some words into Google Translate, it, it should be called rather gobbledygook translate mm. for, yeah. for Latin. It's right. great fun. But it's it is not, great it, fun, yeah. <laughs> but it's not going to get you a... Uh, and a when students turn in papers or turn in exercises that have been run through Google Translate, you know. it's just, yeah, face, <laughs> face palm. Right, right, right. 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 Yeah. So, so let's look at the second sentence. To sure. Just get one more example. Okay. The second sentence is... Quius libertas, sorry, libertas, abisto auctora denda deleta est. So here we see uh, same routine, right? Now we have libertas, subject, and the same verb, but now in a different tense, deleta est, in the, uh, the perfect passive. But testing us on the interrogative, quius, right, right there at the front. So maybe one of the strengths of this method, uh, maybe the main strength, is consistency of um, testing on a given principle. So if you are a person with a good memory, you may be able to learn this principle more or less with seven or eight examples. If you don't have a very good memory, you're toast. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And I'll point out that in chapter 19 here, we have 15 practice and review sentences, seven sententiae, sententiae antiquae, which are more or less direct quotes, nearly direct quotes from the authors of antiquity. Here in Sententiae Antiquae, number one, we have quae est natura animi, est mm-hmm. mortalis, and that's a, a 
a quote from Lucretius. Mm. But so far, that means that we only have 22 sentences, and then we have four more in a selection. So that's 26 sentences in an entire chapter. That's not enough input. That's, those are not enough illustrative examples Mm -hmm. of the content of this chapter for a student to genuinely acquire a language. Hmm. It's enough for a student, in my experience, to learn about the language and to make some progress, certainly. But it's it's probably not enough to acquire this concept or or language in general. So, to David's point earlier, if if a student is looking for a textbook to master a language, right? Chapter nineteen here isn't providing a student enough material with which he or she could master the Latin language or or even these concepts. Now here's where um, a good teacher could step in using the textbook as a tool, not as a substitute for himself or herself, and say. Now the book has given a a fairly accurate, workable explanation of the grammar. Now here are 30 pages of actual Latin. Let's go through it. And together we'll see, um, you know, real life occurrences of these ideas and we'll gain some nuance and not so much learn about the language, but seek to learn the language. Do you think that's a good approach, Patrick? Absolutely. And to Wheelock's credit, there are two readings here, uh, one from... Cicero de Senectute and another from Catullus that attempt to do precisely that, namely Mm -hmm. provide material in situ or in context that exercise the concepts that they've seen elsewhere. And there's even a auxiliary text or a companion text Mm -hmm. to this textbook. I think it's called 30 Stories, in which there are stories that... Yeah, Groton in May, right? Right, yeah. And that's pretty good. Have you taught with Wheelock? I have, very briefly. Very briefly. Now, if you were approaching this chapter, or when you approach it, uh, any chapter, uh, would your approach say, well, you know, forget the exhortationes, let's just, let's go to the uh, the uh, Sententiae Antiquae, at least, you know, try to, uh, you know, immerse ourselves a little bit in, in what's closest to actual Latin, I mean, or... or do a mix of, of all of these things. I mean, yeah, maybe so. And that's a great suggestion and a, a suggestion that is really viable. In any circumstance, of course, first and foremost, the instructor needs to take into account the audience, the audience's needs, the goals of the course. And those of us who teach at an actual institution need to take into account the other team members, namely your your other faculty members. Right. And so if there's an expectation that a, an instructor will teach in a particular mode or that the, that instructor will hand off his or her students to another faculty member in the next semester, all of these things build constraints. Well, Jeff... We need to get out of here, so we need to tell Patrick thank you for this portion of part one, and we're going to continue part two next week. Yep, that's right. we got a lot of, lot of irons in the fire. Yes, that's right. We have some great uh, guests coming up, mm-hmm. but we don't want to tip our hat too soon. Right, and we're, just, we're still working out kind of what order we want to present them in. So Yes. Um, Is that the right expression? What? To, to digress a minute. Tip our hat? Maybe it's tip our Hand. Hand. Right. You, you tip your hat when you're thanking someone. Right. You tip your hand when you're cheating at cards. Is that where that comes from? I think so. I don't think I've ever tipped my hand. Have like you tipped a, a waitress? I've tipped a waitress, right? But how does one tip one's hand? Have you tiptoed around anywhere? I, I No, I don't know much tiptoeing. I think the tip the hand is you're you're showing your cards too early. Okay. okay. Tipping the hand. Okay, I like that. Yeah, but... I bet the listener's glad we... <laughs> 
we sideline into that. <laughs> right. So we're we're not tipping our hand. Not tipping okay. our hand. Right. But we do have to tip our hats to some persons who made this possible. First of all, wonderful sound engineer, Mishka Fernando. I'm, I'm just enjoying the transition there. That was beautiful. Oh, thanks. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> yes, but yes, big thanks to Mishka uh, for everything. Thanks to uh, Scott Vinzen yeah, and Screaming, wonderful guitar for stuff. For the screaming guitar stuff. Love it. Yes, uh, and the bass that uh, and the synthesizer for the bumper music on the ads. That's also Ken. He contributed that so generously. Yeah. And uh, I guess that's pretty much wraps it up. Oh, no. no. Aren't you going to tell us about the Moss Method? I do have to speak about the Moss Method. So, Please do. Uh, we're coming out with something new this fall, actually. In addition to a big discount coming up, we're going to we're gonna run a sale uh, before September 1. We're also going to have office hours. Each week, if you are a member of the Moss Method Fall Cohort, you're going to get a little bit of time uh, live with me, an office hour where you can ask any question about Greek that you want to. No, you're going to offload this on one of your flunkies. You're not going to be there. Oh, no. I what? am the flunky. You were the flunky? Yeah. That's okay. my tattoo on my left arm on the, around the deltoid. <laughs> be the flunky. So you're going to be yes. accessible live. That's correct. Wow, that's amazing. For anyone who signs up for the Moss Method. That's so, great. Uh, we may even let a few people in who aren't a part of the cohort who just have Greek-related questions. Man, very generous of you. Well, I, I really want people to learn Greek. Yeah. Um, yeah, I want to earn some money too, but you know, Greek's really important. So go to mossmethod.com, check out the program, Module 1, $299. I like to think it's a value for what you get. Uh, I'd really like the uh, the listener to check it out. Yeah, and they can go from neophyte to erudite. That's the slogan. In, uh, in no time at all. No time. Sounds great. Well... Hey, if listeners, if you want to get in touch with us, you can write to me at jeff at adnauseum.com or to dave at dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Yes, we'd love to receive that mail. We do. It's it's so great to hear uh, from people. It's also a really good way if you want to get a shout out. Yes. Contact us. We'd love to love to talk you up on the show. But let us know what you're, what you're thinking, what you liked, what you don't like, what you want to hear about. Um, yeah, don't hesitate to drop us a line. No, we would love that. You can also go to... Um, the Apple iTunes spot and leave a review for us there. I think you can do the same thing on Spotify. Yes, yeah. And we've been so uh, grateful to all the support we've got and all the wonderful listeners. It's been wonderful. And Dave, you've got our gustatory parting shot, right? I do. This comes from a woman named Skylar Blue. Hmm. I don't really know who she is, but I love this quote. <laughs> she says, quote, 100% true fact, spam means sizzle, pork, and mmm. Someone tell me I'm wrong. Thanks for listening.